Hello, everybody. Good to see you after a week off. And uh, before we get going today, I just want to thank all of our leaders and those of you that serve for, you know, just all that you do uh, week in and week out, especially last week, those that, uh, that filled a lot of gaps uh, while my family and I were out. We went to Orlando. We're, we're kind of amusement park resort people. And, uh, you know, we got a good deal. And I'm, I mean, sometimes we've gone to like Orlando a couple times a year. Uh, we, we like it that much. This is the first time that we've gone in the summer. It was hot. I tell you what, it was hot, like hot, hot. You know, <laughs> have y'all seen that commercial? I, I don't even know. It's like a, a hotel commercial and the lady comes in and she's excited about her room. And she says, not just a kitchen, a kitchen kitchen. My kids love that. So this was hot, hot in, uh, in July in Florida. Uh, but we had a good time. Of course, uh, as in all vacations, I'm exhausted. And so this coming weeks, I will be vacationing from my vacation. So hopefully I will not be lethargic up here and uh, will be able to articulate uh, a great sermon for you um, to, to, to think about. All right, turn your Bibles to Psalm 107. This actually is one of my favorite psalms um, because it speaks to me in so many ways, and I pray that it will speak to you as well. Psalm 107, this is a long psalm, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a big bite by endeavoring to, to preach this psalm in the, the way I'm going to do it this morning. Uh, we're not going to read every single verse expositionally, but we are going to go through most of it together, uh, reading some of it uh, together as well. And as you're turning, let me ask you this question. Uh, have you ever been at your wit's end about anything? I mean, is that phrase something that you've heard before? It's, it's idiomatic. You know, it, you take the words apart, it doesn't really mean anything. It's like saying it's raining cats and dogs. I mean, what does that mean? It, it's just raining hard, like a monsoon. If you go out, you're going to get wet. It's like saying, I'm going to a round table. It's not going, I'm going to do anything with a table that's round. I'm going to a meeting. This phrase, I'm at my wit's end, basically means you really don't know what you should do about something, no matter how hard you think about it. It means that you're overwhelmed by the difficulties of life and are stuck. Uh, John Piper says wisdom is knowing after the instructions, uh, after your instructions run out, you know what to do. Well, being at your wit's end means that you have no wisdom. All of your wisdom is swallowed up. That's what being at your wit's end is about. And really, uh, that's one of the, the phrases that comes out of this psalm. And it's why it's so special. Because all of us have those situations in our life when we really are at our wit's end. We've come to the end of everything that we know to do in our own power, in our minds, and even exhausting uh, the resources around us. We, we were stuck and we don't know what to do. And this is what the psalmist presents to us in this psalm today. And I pray that it would be beneficial to you. You know, there's a lot going on probably in your personal lives, in your extended families, work, finances, in your own heart, the world that we live in, that we could say that in many respects, we're all at some points at our wit's end. Psalm 107 was written to people like you and I, people who are going through our daily lives. And at some point, you just don't know what to do when you have to do something. And so what Psalm 107 really comes to, it's not necessarily it's not elevating this idea of being at your wit's end. It's who do you turn to when you're at your wit's end. And the psalmist commends us 
to look into the steadfast love of the Lord. That's a refrain that you'll hear over and over in this psalm. And so this is a commendation for all of us who experience troubles in life to consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to start where we should start at verse one. All right. So you ready to read a little bit? We're going to read verse one through three. This is the introduction to this psalm. Read out loud with me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he's redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Stop there. We don't know who wrote this psalm. Um, it, it could be any of the, the psalmists that are named throughout the 150 psalms. Uh, it, it perhaps could be even, even be David. We don't know who it is. This is, a, this is considered a wisdom psalm, so that really means we're supposed to be able to read it and glean um, some ways to go through life that we may not be aware of or may not be thinking of. That's what a wisdom psalm does for us. The, the overarching theme in this psalm is God's divine redemption. In other words, how God saves us through the, the different circumstances of life. When life's troubles hit us, how does God come as a redeemer and save us from those circumstances and instances? And like many psalms, this specific psalm tells the story of Israel. In fact, this, it's, it's said that uh, this psalm was written after they had recently been freed from captivity in Babylon. If you just go up a couple of verses uh, inside of Psalm 106, the one that precedes this, verse 47 says this, Save us, O Lord God. And gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. And so 106 was the nation of Israel in bondage, in captivity. And the psalmist was expressing a prayer to God. Would you come and save us, deliver us from this trouble that we've brought upon ourselves? And Psalm 107 is the is the the manifestation of that prayer. It's them looking back on their imprisonment, looking back on the desert that they went through. It's them looking back on the sin, the sin of their rebellion and how it appeared in their lives and saying, God, thank you. Thank you for bringing me out of all that you brought me out. Thank you for your steadfast love toward me. That's what the psalmist is doing here. That's what the psalmist is doing here. I want you to notice something because this is going to happen uh, over and over again as we read through the psalm. He's connecting this idea of steadfast love, God's steadfast love to those who are his redeemed. Who are the redeemed? It's, it's those, those are people who God has called to himself. It's, it's those who God is, uh, he's bringing them from whatever tight spot they're in and bringing them really to the safety of himself. And we'll see that throughout each one of these uh, each one of these passages here as we read it. The psalmist provides four snapshots, really four different life situations. And there's a pattern here. And you're going to see this pattern replicated four different times. And the pattern is simply the psalmist brings up a crisis. Life is life's troubles happens upon you. Either they just happen or you bring it on yourself. And then he shows people crying out. They're crying out for deliverance. And then the psalmist shows us what that deliverance looks like. And then he shows us how we should respond after God has delivered us. So I want you to, to be aware of that as we're reading. So the first situation that he talks about are wanderers in a desert. Wanderers in a desert. Let's read verse, verses 4 through 9 together. 
Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no place to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Stop right there. All right, so this is a picture of, of some. He, he says that word some. We don't know how many people, but we know it's more than one. And you'll see that word some again repeated in each one of these situations of life. So it's not just one person that's in a predicament. It's several people, and they're all in that lot together. And so some have are wandering in a desert. He uses the word desert waste. I don't know if there's classifications of desert. I mean, some of y'all in the military, y'all have been in the desert. There's like a desert and there's desert desert. So if you live in Arizona, you actually live in a desert, but it's populated. And there's actually some nice parts, some real nice parts of Arizona, right? But this is not just the desert. This is like the desert desert. That word waste means wilderness, okay? And so the idea is it's sparse, uninhabited, place that you don't want to be in and a place that you don't want to go. And people are wandering around in this environment and they are stuck. They're alone. They have no place to go. That's what he's painting a picture of. Not only are they in an uninhabited land, but they are in a place with little or no sustenance. Now, I've, I've spent four years, courtesy of the United States Army, in a desert. And from what I remember, of course, you got desert where people are living, Bedouins, tents, sheep. There's, uh, you know, there's stuff around. You're able to take care of yourself. But this is not just desert where people are. This is desert, desert. This is, this is no place that you want to be. And so the psalmist describes those who are unable to find their way. In verse 4, he uses this phrase. They have no city to dwell in. And in the Bible, the city, the word city has a special connotation. And the connotation is this. It's, it's that place where God is. It's that place where you find community. You find belonging. It's, you're in the place where all the people that you want to be with are there. And he says they don't have this place. They have no city to dwell in. They're stuck all alone. They have no belonging. They have no community. And in verse 5, he says, some are starving, they're hungry, their souls fainted within them. So this isn't just physical hunger. This isn't just a, a physical in, uh, impalement. This is spiritual. Their souls are fainting. It's fainting within them. This is speaking of their spiritual condition. And so these are persons whose life situation has overwhelmed them. And, I, and just listening to the psalmist just unfold this picture of a person wandering around in the desert, I mean, it makes you, it just gives us this understanding the desert is no place where any of us would want to be. We wouldn't, we wouldn't choose to be in this kind of a, a desert waste. At least most of us wouldn't. But I think all of us experience desert wilderness experiences in our life. Perhaps you're here one today that would say that all of your life has been just a wandering around in a desert type land. And so the question for us looking at this situation is how do we find our way? How do we find a way out? How can we nourish ourselves while in the midst of trouble in a desert experience? In this case, the, the psalmist gives us some, some 
some clues. And in verse 6, he says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. I mean, how do you cry out? You ever notice? He didn't, I mean, there are, there's no instructions here that say, all right, when you cry out, you need to raise your hands and then put your hands by your mouth and say, ah, help. He, he doesn't say that. We don't know what to do. And this is important because some of us, some of you all, will, will make a tradition and a religion out of crying out. If I cry out this way, all right, so if I scratch my face up and make it look real ugly and say, God, help me, then maybe God will answer. Or if I get on my knees, then, then that's the way I should cry out, just like this. You know, some of us, you know, being on my knees isn't enough. I'm just going to lie uh, prostrate on the floor, and then I'm going to cry out. There's an important implication here. The psalmist is not telling us how to cry out because he's de-emphasizing the crying out. The crying out. We will see those, those, that, that phrase. They cry to the Lord in all their trouble. We're going to see it four more, three more times. We see it in verse 6 here. We're going to see it in verse 13. We're going to see it in verse 19. We're going to see it in verse 28. But the psalmist is repeating it to de-emphasize his emphasis on crying out because the crying out is not the important thing. It's the one that responds. And so in verse 7, we see how God responds. Verse 7 says, He leads them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So God doesn't just magically beam them out of the trouble. He le- you see it? He leads them. He leads them by a straight way. And so they were wandering not really sure where to go, and then God shows up, and he leads them on a straight way. He doesn't make them wander aimlessly around anymore. He leads them to where they're supposed to be. The psalmist says he actually doesn't beam them out of trouble. He doesn't make, uh, he doesn't make the trouble go away. He enters the crisis, and perhaps he experiences it with them, joining them, and he leads them out. Not only does he lead them out of trouble, he leads them back to a city to dwell in. Where they, had, where they had no community, he gives them a new community. They have belonging. They're in a place where they're supposed to be. They're in a place where they fit in. And see, in verse 8, he says, Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. This is, the, this, is, this is the psalmist encouraging us in how to respond. So if you're in a desert place, how should you respond to God in his deliverance? He says, Thank the Lord. Thank him for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Of course, we're going to see that phrase repeated again in verse 15, verse 21, and verse 31. He's saying, give God some heartfelt thanks because he has shown love to you by delivering you from a place that you couldn't bring yourself out of. And so in verse 9, we see how God's steadfast love comes to someone in the desert. Verse 9 says, for he satisfies a longing soul. Does your soul need to be satisfied? I mean, are you parched within you and no water, no physical water quenches your thirst? For he satisfies a longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. This This isn't a physical problem, this desert. It's a spiritual problem. And the only nourishment for spiritual problems is God himself. And that really is how God comes to the person who's in a desert. 
He comes himself. He gives you himself. He nourishes you by being with you in your plight, in your desert. He gives you himself. Satisfaction comes as God joins them in the desert and he leads them out. He fills them with good things, the psalmist says. That's how God delivers. And when you see, and what you see is God coming really almost like a shepherd. Peter preached Psalm 23 last week. And so this is a living expression of a shepherd coming of him finding and comforting and helping someone that's lonesome and lost. And and he leads them not on an aimless path, but a straight path back to where they belong. And he satisfies them. That's the first situation. The second situation is prisoners in rebellion. Prisoners in rebellion. Let's read verses 10 through 16 together. Starting at verse 10. Here we go. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in iron, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So we bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Let's stop right there. And so these are people that are suffering because of their own sin. Have you ever done something? You know you did it. You probably even know you shouldn't have done it. And then you, you experience the consequence of what you've done. What I would tell you, that's called rebellion. And there's one response for rebellion. God does something to you. You, you, you have consequences, natural consequences, but also, I would say, spiritual consequences. And these are the consequences of someone that's, that's been in rebellion. You become a prisoner in and of your own sin. And so the psalmist tells us that these people, they knew what God word, God's word said. They knew what his will was, and yet they rejected it. They spurned it. They spurn God's word. And so this group knows what God wants them to be, who he wants them to be. This, this, this group knows what God wants them to do. They, they, they aren't questioning that. They just choose to go their own way. They choose to be independent. And all of a sudden they found themselves beaten down in labor. That means that this is the suffering of the consequence of their sin. And they're in prison, a, a prison of rebellion. Um, there, there are countless examples of rebellion in the Old Testament, actually the New Testament as well. Let me give you three in the Old Tes- Testament. God's reaction is always the same. In 1 Samuel 12, 15, we see these words. Go to the next slide. But if you'll not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So the first thing that we see in God's response to rebellion, his hand comes against those who choose to rebel. Secondly, Isaiah 63.10, but they rebelled, talking of Israel, and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. God becomes our enemy when we choose to rebel against him. Lastly, Isaiah Isaiah 66.24, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For the worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And this speaks of eternal, eternal torment. These are God's responses to those who willfully choose to rebel 
against him. And none of us wants to be in that circumstance. And so in the words of the psalmist here, the picture that he gives us of rebellion is is darkness. He says it's darkness and it's gloom. And just like the people in the desert, these people are also stuck. They're alone. They're imprisoned in the chains of their misery because of their rebellion. The devil didn't make them do it. Somebody that they don't like didn't make them do it. They did it by their own choosing. They're imprisoned in the chains of misery because of their own rebellion. I mean, think of a person that's in jail, but, and, and not just in jail, in prison. And they're not just in prison, they're in confinement, solitary confinement. Okay, and we only know what that's like because we, most of us only know what that's like because we see it on TV, in a movie or something. Or perhaps you saw a documentary of someone that's on, on death row. And just for a moment, think what that would be like being alone, solitary, perhaps in darkness, and you're living with your own thoughts, with your own breath, and all the, the physical just imperfections about that environment. And this is what the rebellion of our sin does for us. And I would tell you, the psalmist also asked that these people are, are people who sit in the shadow of death, which equates to they're, they're sitting on death row. They're just waiting to die. There's lots of people, lots of Christians who are living in the consequences of their rebellion. And we don't know what that looks like. It doesn't always look like what the psalmist is pointing, painting here, but I can tell you its end is misery and its end is likely death. Sin brings pain. The wages of sin is death. Verse 13, we see what, see what happens. They cry to the Lord in their trouble. There's something about crying. We don't know how they cried. We don't know what they did, what posture they assumed, what they actually said, how loud their voice was. Maybe it was, it was, a, it was a, a whisper. But they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Now, this one troubles me, I have to admit, because this is a person that's in rebellion. They're, they're sinning purposefully. And we've seen God's reaction from the Old Testament of what he does to people who are in rebellion. And yet we read these words in verse 13. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. God delivered them. He didn't keep punishing them. He didn't put them to death. He showed mercy. He delivered them. Verse 14. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. This is a picture of somebody with their hands tethered together by a rope. And, it, and the, the, the picture is he brought them out of darkness and, and out of the shadow of death. He freed them from death row. Cut the, cut the tether. He let them escape death. But not only did he let them escape death, he let them escape the life, the, the imprisonment that they actually deserved. And so how does God's steadfast love respond to someone who cries from a prison of rebellion? I mean, this is a prison. This is a prison that someone deserves. It's a just cause that they are experiencing in their life to be in prison. And God shows up as a merciful God. He frees them. He lets them get off free. He comes as a powerful, merciful, rescuing God. He comes as a merciful rescuer who's able to break bars of iron. This is special. When it says 
that he's able to break um, in, in verse 16. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Bronze and iron were the, the strongest metals of this ancient Near Eastern society. They didn't know any metals that were stronger than that. And so God is presenting himself as the God that's able to break you free from any entangling sin. Think about that. There's nothing that God can't break you free of, free of that you've entangled yourself in. There's no sin, no matter how heinous it is, that God can't free you from. That's how God's steadfast love meets you in a prison. Situation three. Situation three makes me laugh because it talks about fools. And the Bible says a lot about fools. So let's read verses 17 through 22. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Stop there. So the focus here is on on fools, fools on account of their own sin. So this is another group of people who they, they see the right to do. They just choose to do otherwise. And the Bible has a lot to say about fools. And this is how uh, I would define fools and foolishness. Firstly, foolishness is, is willful defiance and open rebellion. So it's like the person that gets themselves put in prison because of their own sin. They're just openly defiant. They're doing their own thing. They're disobedient. A fool is someone who knows what to do and doesn't do it. And so the picture that the psalmist is painting for us here really is that this is a group that lives by the mantra, if it's fun, if it tastes good, if it feels good, I'm going to do it, even if I'm not supposed to do it. These are the kinds of people who, who love the sinful pleasures of the world. They indulge and they, they don't hold back. I mean, I'm going for it. And so the psalmist is saying their iniquity, that, that word iniquity is, is doing your own thing. That, that's, that's like eating. I, I just shouldn't say it like this because I like cake. It's like cake and ice cream. Like I'm going to indulge on purpose. I'm full in. I don't care. That's what's happening here. And the interesting thing is their indulgence has made them sick. And so the the things that they've said yes to has made them sick in their body such that it's manifesting uh, in, in affliction. That's what the psalmist tells us. And in verse 18, he says they've loathed any kind of food and they've drawn near to death. And so this person is actually... Uh, their, their foolish rebellion has made them sick to the point where they're almost about to die. And if you've ever been around someone that's at the point of death, you know that they, they almost have an aversion to any kind. Of, they don't want food. And so this is happening. They don't want any kind of food. They absolutely loathe it. They've lost their appetite. And so we get the, the sense that their indulgence in life really has lost their appeal for life itself. And then the same thing happens in verse 19. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble. And then the psalmist says, for some crazy reason, God delivers them from their distress. And so verse 20, we see these words. He sent out his words and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. And so if we ask the question, how does the, how does, how does the steadfast love of God respond to 
a person in a situation of being in the rebellion of our own folly, the psalmist says God sends his word to heal them. You've probably heard those words before. I mean, the Bible says a lot about God and the power of his words. Hebrews 4.12 says that, that God's word is alive and it's powerful. It's able to do way beyond what we know or expect it can do. And the word is doing that right here in this this person's life, in this person's circumstance. Of course, we see the power of God in creation. Genesis 1 says God spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light. And what happened? There, There was light. And that happened in the six consecutive days of creation. In the New Testament, we see Jesus' life as he spoke and, and did things in the power, using the power of, of his words. And he healed multitudes and he caused miracles to happen. And in verse 21, we see these words. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. That's, that's the psalmist encouraging him to thank God for his deliverance. And in verse 22, we see the response. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs and of joy. This means God gives them a testimony and he restores their joy. He takes away the, the, the evil pleasures of this life and instead he like gives you joy. Real joy. Last situation is in verse, verse four. And I call this the unexpected storm. And this is this is the one that's the hardest to explain. This is the hardest to explain. And you'll see why. Let's read verses 23 through uh, 32 together. Some went down to the sea in their ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for it commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous work to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the, of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And so here's the situation. You got some sailors and they're, they're just doing their job. OK, and their job is to go to sea. We don't know if they're fishing or if they're en route to a journey to, to do whatever sailors do at sea. But it, these aren't amateur sailors. They're probably on a big boat. They're used, they've got their sail up, and they're meaning they go fast and long. And in the midst of them marveling at God's great creation, I, you know, I, uh, I'm jealous of sailors because yeah, uh, uh, a sailor on a big boat gets to go out in the middle of the ocean and see wonders that none of us see unless we're, you're there or you're on a cruise ship or maybe uh, you see it on TV. And so they're seeing the great wonders of God out there in front of them. One minute they're, they're in awe of, God, uh, of God's creation and the next minute they're afraid of it. They lose their courage because the sea has turned on them. And they're seeing... Uh, they're seeing the, the wind blow the waves up, okay? And he gives us this imagery that they're, I mean, they're, their boat is, is teetering and, and, and tossing throughout the storm. There's nothing they can do. They have no way out. And, 
The, the psalmist uses these words. They're at their wit's end. They, they've come to the end of their wisdom. There's nothing they can do. They're out in the middle of the ocean. Who are you going to call? You, you can't call the Ghostbusters. You can't, you, you can't call the Coast Guard because they're on the coast, right? They're, they're really at their wit's end. They're stuck. They're, they're alone with themselves and no one else to, to call. This situation is, is a perfect situation to compare to our own lives, isn't it? Because we wake up, we get dressed, we get a little breakfast, we intend to go and do whatever life's work is for that day, and then the unexpected happens. A relational thing happens that just ruins life, or there's a death in the family, or something happens at work, or the nation is in crisis, or something very close and personal to you happens, and it's a storm, and it turns our lives upside down. And that's the picture that the psalmist is giving us here. And, and, and here's at least the catch. Unlike the desert, unlike the person that's in prison because of their own rebellion, unlike the fool in his folly, God brings this storm. Can you handle that? God, is. it, it says it right here. Verse 25, for he commanded and raised the stormy winds, which lifted up the waves of the sea. God brings this on them. And he doesn't bring it on them because they're, because they're in sin. He brings it on them so that they get their mind off of their trouble and would turn it on the only one who can respond. And he wants us to see that as well in our own situation. When we're at our wit's end, the psalmist paints this picture that the storms of life can be so big that we can't figure a way out. And if we would let if, if we would only look at the storm, then it will surely topple us and turn our life upside down. And we may even drown in the misery of our own storm. But he says when you're at your wit's end, don't look at the storm. Look at the one, the only one who can respond. And so what do the sailors do? You know, you got to love sailors. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And verse 29 says, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. If we're not careful, we'll think that the miracle here is in the storm being still. But y'all know God can do that, right? Jesus just spoke to the storm, and it just it quieted. He invited Peter to come out and walk on the water. Jesus can do that. That's, that's not a miracle for God. It's just him doing his thing. No, the, the real miracle here is a little bit, it's, it's a little more subtle. It's a little more subtle. How does God's steadfast love respond here? They didn't need a shepherd to lead them out of the desert. They didn't need mercy extended because of their sin. They didn't need uh, a healer. What they needed was a rescuer. And this rescuer wasn't like the prison situation. They needed a rescuer. And here's the miracle. They needed a rescuer who was bigger than life. They needed something that was sovereign. You ever had one of those situations where your mama couldn't save you, your daddy couldn't save you, your money couldn't save you? You, you needed something bigger than you. And this is what the storm brings. It reminds us that sometimes we need something way, 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 way bigger than we are. We need the sovereign king of the universe. And these sailors, they had sense. I don't, you know, I, I make fun of sailors because I'm a soldier on the inside. These sailors had sense enough to call on the only one that could save them in this storm. 
They cried out to God in their distress and God came and he came as a sovereign king that's bigger than life. And so how does God respond in the midst of your storm? He invites you to call on the one that's king, that's sovereign over all of creation to calm the tumultuous waves of your life's situation. He does that for you. I like verse 33 and 32. This is their response. And this is just like sailors. All right. Firstly, they thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And then they, uh, the psalmist says, let, it, let them extol them in the congregation of the people and praise them in the assembly of the elders. Those soldiers, guess what those sailors did? They went out and party. They went to a tavern. They got some ale out, started toasting, and they started giving testimonies of, of, of all the big catch, the big storm, and what God did to bring them out. That's what they did. That's what verse 32, 31 and 32 tells us. All right, so those are the four situations. Those parables that convey the, the meat of this psalm. Uh, what I want to do in the, the last few minutes is hone on on this thought of steadfast love of God. What should we see in God in the aspects of his love in this, this little phrase, the steadfast love of God? And, and here's the deal for all of us, I think. Oftentimes we connect with God in one aspect. For some of you, God might be a, a shepherd. He's there to comfort me whenever life gets tough. For some of you, you've been in some difficult spots. You've been in some tight spots and God has been a rescuer for you. For some of you, you've experienced the, the consequences of your own sin. And you know what it's like to be in rebellion and have God lift you out of that, to break the bonds of, of your addiction, of, of, of your, just, your, your heinous sin. But I think what the psalmist wants us to do is identify with all these. He's saying at some point you're going to need to know the steadfast love of God in all of these circumstances because God doesn't come to us in just one way. You need him in all of, of these ways. And so the question I'd like to leave us with is, is simply this. How can we meet God's steadfast love? How can you meet God's steadfast love in the situations of your life when life brings trouble? When things aren't going right, when you're at your wit's end and your wisdom has run out, how can you personally meet God's steadfast love? I think the answer is simply this. God's steadfast love comes, comes down for us in the person of Jesus Christ. God's steadfast love for us comes down to us in the person of Jesus. And we see Jesus in each one of these situations, don't we? We see him in each one of these life troubling circumstances. Jesus left his home in eternity to live among us. Jesus invited himself into the desert of our world, so to speak. He came homeless. He didn't have a place to lay his head. The scriptures tell us that he made our humanity his home. John 6.35 says he came as the bread of life. John 4.14 says he comes as the living water to nourish us in our spiritual desert. He comes as a shepherd to meet us in our wandering and to lead us out of our desert into community with us. That's the, that's the Jesus that comes down, manifesting God's steadfast love for you. Secondly, Jesus was tried and executed as a criminal, as if he rebelled himself. Jesus bore our sin on the cross as if he committed every sin that we have all committed. 
Jesus died a death that he didn't deserve, but he conquered sin and death in your place for your sin by his resurrection. And so the steadfast love of God is demonstrated in Jesus' cross. He rescues us from situations more secure than any prison could ever present. And because Jesus died to pay the price for your sin and your rebellion, God's steadfast love comes as a merciful rescuer for all of us, even in the rebellion of our, of our sin against God. Thirdly, Jesus comes as a healer when we've been foolish, when we experience the deathly sickness of our own sin. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might get his righteousness. What's righteousness? It's God gifting us himself. We get all those things that's good about Jesus, and he takes all the muck about us into himself. Isaiah 53 says that by his stripes, we are healed. By Jesus' stripes, we're healed. So we can take on Jesus' righteousness. And this gives us a new heart to to lose a taste for the sin of this world, and we get a taste instead of the joys of God. And lastly, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus was there when the sea was made. He was there. He's the one that made it. Jesus holds all things together. At the cross, Jesus turned the storm that was against us to now being for us. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we use that as as, really as a a cliche kind of a a verse, isn't it? But the, the verse simply means that God's purposes come to fruition in our life. He does things, all kinds of things for his purpose, but he does it ultimately that we might gain joy out of it if you can receive it. And so God works all things for those who loves him. Jesus uses the storm. Your courage may your courage may melt away, but God is there for you. You don't have to figure life out in a steadfast love. Jesus meets you right where you are. All right. The psalm ends. We aren't going to read the end of it, but you can peek there later on today. Verse 33 through 42 gives us all these scenarios about how God does the impossible. Listen to a couple of these lines. He turns rivers into deserts. He turns springs of water into thirsty ground. He turns a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. And contrarily, he turns a desert into pools of water. And I think one of the implications here is God can do the impossible in your life. What do you perceive right now is that it's impossible for anyone to do, including you and your own strength, with your own money, with your own resources. God can do those things. He can do the impossible. When it seems like there's no way possible that deliverance can come for you in whatever the situation, the psalmist is saying the things that no man can do, God can. And so for some of you, You need to know that what seems impossible in your circumstance really is possible with God. And it's even more possible when you cling to Jesus and the steadfast love that he demonstrates by his death on the cross. We're going to end Psalm 43, uh, uh, Psalm 107, verse 43. And the words say, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And so the the psalmist is, is reminding us. Firstly, if you if you are wise, if you think you got a little bit of wisdom among about you, but more importantly, if you know, you know, if you know, you know, you need wisdom, then you need to be thinking about this stuff. And what he's saying is 
He's saying practically, think about these life situations that have just unfolded because this is going to happen to you at some point. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not like my, it's like it's going to. All right, so I'm laying out some generic situations, and it might not look exactly like this, but you, you're going to happen. This is going to happen upon you, and you, you need a little bit of wisdom about you. I think he's saying be introspective about your own life situations and, and use this as a little bit of fuel for the wisdom that you're going to need when you get in a tough spot. And then lastly, he's saying just consider, consider the firm, immovable, trustworthy, never ending love of God. That's what that phrase means. The steadfast love of the Lord. You know, we sing that in a song. There's hymns that use that refrain. There's there's multiple psalms that talk about the steadfast love of the Lord because it's that important. And the steadfast love of the Lord for you is this never ending not moving, trustworthy love that God has for his redeemed. And if you trust Jesus, you are the redeemed. And so it's a love that here's our here's our cry for help. The psalmist encourages you when you're in a tough spot, cry out for help. It's not the cry that's important. It's the one that you're crying to and the only one that can respond. The psalmist encourages us that this steadfast love is a love that saves us when we're in trouble. And there's no trouble like the trouble that we've seen here in, this, in these pages of, the, of this psalm, right? This is real trouble. Real people in real situations of life. God's steadfast love is a love that disciplines us when we sin. And we all sin. And some of us sin hugely. But there's no sin that's impossible for, for God to respond to. God's steadfast love brings storms in our lives that cause us to trust God. God's steadfast love is a love that's never ending. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your steadfast love. We we confess our need for your steadfast love. Some of us here today desperately need to sense and feel your love for them in their own circumstance, tight spot, something they've got themselves in, the trouble that's happened in life, whether it's a relational problem, a financial situation, something that's brought on because of things that happened years ago or just life happening. God, we all have reasons in the here and now of why we need your steadfast love. And so remind us today through this psalm that our appropriate response to any trouble is to cry out to you. Lord, you're not worried about what we say, what our posture is, how loud we are. What matters is the one that we're crying to. And so God, we ask you to respond. Would you hear our cry, Jesus? Would you give us trust that Would you give us the ability to trust you with our cry? And having cried, would you do what the psalmist says in each one of these situations? Would you hear us? And would you respond by delivering us from all those circumstances that plague us, that have us stuck, that make us feel alone, that have us imprisoned, that that put us in our misery? And Lord, we'll be faithful as the psalmist encourages us to respond 
We'll respond to your response. We'll give thanks. We'll tell of your, the testimony of your deliverance. Lord, we'll throw a party. We'll go to the tavern with the congregation of the people. We'll call the elders together. We'll toast to all that God has done. Lord, thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you that it never fails. Thank you that it's unending. Thank you that we can trust it. Thank you that we can trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.